And I think what you have to remember is federal public defenders do this every single day, all the time. And it is not that common to have a private counsel who is able to sustain their entire practice solely on federal criminal work. Our goal is to get our clients the best result that they could get, regardless of who their attorney is. You're listening to J.P. Davis, a federal public defender for the Western District of North Carolina. Welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. The most common expert that we would use in a white collar case is a forensic accountant. Basically, if you have an expertise, you contact your local federal defender office. They, they will probably be interested at some point. And we'll just wait for the right case to come through the door. In this episode, we discuss the purpose of the Federal Public Defender's Office, why the Public Defender's Office needs experts, how forensic accountants can market themselves, and the role of technology in reviewing large volumes of data. He is the first assistant Federal Public Defender with the Western District of North Carolina. J.P. Davis, welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Thank you for being on the podcast, JP. I really do appreciate it. I haven't had a person with a f- public federal defender's office, and I'm thankful for you being on the podcast. It's it's going to be interesting. I've never had this type of uh, perspective before, and I'm pretty sure the audience will enjoy it. Why did you pursue a law career? Uh, well, originally, I, I like many lawyers, did not uh, aim for that. I actually planned when I was in high school to be a veterinarian. And when I went to college, I decided I wanted to do something more research oriented. And so I was going to be a biologist and I just had a philosophy undergraduate, uh, uh, sorry, minor, and ended up being a philosophy double major. Around through that process, I did it all the labs to be a biologist and my brother went on to be a biologist. And I quickly realized I like the theory of that but the practice is not for me. So I was kind of left saying, well, what do I do with my life? And around that time, uh, someone close to me was the victim of a violent crime. And that is what really shifted me to thinking about law. And the more I learned about it, the more it really tied into the philosophy side of you know, where I was looking. And law is basically where we make philosophy real, you know, where the rubber meets the road of it. And so I decided to go to law school. Originally, I was interested in being a prosecutor, and uh, I did an internship with the Durham County DA's office, which was a lot of fun. But the more I learned about federal law, the more I thought there are so many people who are interested in being prosecutors and who want to be prosecutors. And what we really don't have enough of is good defense attorneys, and we really need it. That's basically what led me on to become you know, interested in criminal defense. So how do you transition from going from law school to the Federal Defender's Office? I started with a clerkship with uh, Judge Graham Mullen um, here in the Western District of North Carolina in 2005. And I wanted to do criminal law, I always had, but I was very interested in doing civil practice too, um, because there's just a lot of interesting elements to it. So I went from Judge Mullins Chambers to a local law firm, firm, James McElroy and Deal. And I worked there doing both civil and criminal for six years. Became a partner in that firm. 
And around the six year mark, I decided, you know, I had done a lot of civil work and my practice was becoming more and more civil. I was interested in doing a lot more criminal work. One way of doing that, of course, is to go into a defender's office or a prosecutor's office. But the other thing that really motivated me is it just didn't sit well with me that the people who could pay lawyers would have a better quality of representation. It just didn't seem like that was right to me. And I have always been very interested in the defender's office. When I started with Judge Mullen, it was the first year that the Federal Defender's Office had opened in this district. And I remember you know, watching the different lawyers come in. And there are very, some very, very good criminal defense attorneys on the private bar. And there are some who were not as good, but none of them had the gravitas that a prosecutor has when they walk into a courtroom, just that feeling that they own the courtroom, mm-hmm. except for the federal defenders. You know, the, those first federal defenders would walk in there with the same stature and the same command as the prosecutors and ready to do you know, whatever battle it took uh, to fight for their clients. And that just really motivated a large portion of my career, just the admiration for these folks. So when an opportunity came to get into the defender's office, I jumped at it. Um, it really was just these people had been an inspiration to me. So it just was, it was great timing because I had reached the point in my career where I finally felt like I was actually competent to do that work on my own. And it just happened that the position opened at that time. So I applied and I did not get it. Six or eight months later, they called me back when they had another opening. I was good enough to be a close second runner for the previous position. And they just wanted to go ahead and bring me in. And that's, I've been here ever since. What is the purpose of the Federal Defender's Office? My understanding is whenever someone is brought before the judge after an indictment, the judge looks at the financial application and determines whether or not a federal defender can be appointed if there's not enough assets. Am I misunderstanding anything? No, that's correct. Um, Yeah, so the purpose of the Defender's Office was established by the Criminal Justice Act of 1964, which uh, came out. Uh, the year after Gideon E. Rainwright established a right to uh, appointed counsel for criminal defendants. And the purpose is basically to provide that to the federal system. So the Defender's Office exists essentially as a law firm within the federal government entirely for the purpose of representing indigent defendants who can't otherwise afford counsel. And the point is basically to give them the representation that they would get if they could afford counsel. So in order to qualify Um, You're absolutely correct. They have to fill out a financial affidavit at the beginning of the case. The very first thing that happens when they come in for an initial appearance, that's generally on a warrant or a summons. Uh, We meet with them. We just basically explain to them what's going on and we have them fill out a financial affidavit that is only given to the judge uh, to show that they can't afford an attorney. And then the judge will basically look at it, determine that they can't afford an attorney. There are very few, I will say, there are very few people who show up in federal court who don't already have an attorney with them who can't afford one. And then the judge will order an attorney appointed, and it will either be an attorney from my office or it will be an attorney from what we call the the CJA panel, which is a, a panel of private attorneys. So why would the judge appoint a private attorney versus an employee of the the defender's office? Well, the way that we have it working in our districts is the actually the judge just orders us to appoint somebody. Um, And our office actually has a coordinating attorney 
who is exclusively in charge of determining how to move cases through the CJA panel um, and helping the CJA panel. That is an internal process that's basically firewalled off from our trial unit. She makes the determination, and, and typically that determination is made based on whether the defender's office has a conflict. Occasionally, there'll be cases where uh, there's a state attorney who is already on, working on a, the case in some capacity. If it's similar state charges and they're also on the CJA panel, they may stay with the case for continuity of counsel. And there can be other various reasons why it might go to a panel attorney. But usually it will go to our office first. And then if there's a conflict, such as a multi-defendant case, it will go to the CJA panel. Okay, so the CJA panel is just a private, I would consider it blessed list that really subcontracts with the Federal Defender's Office? Is that kind of how it works? I, I Yeah, basically. I wouldn't say they subcontract with our office. They're directly, they're directly appointed onto that list by the court. Mm-hmm. There is a committee that includes the Federal Defender. Um, it includes our CJA coordinator, but it also includes a judge. It includes we have a, a separate district panel representative who is independent of our office who is basically the face of the CJA panel. And that committee is what determines who is on uh, the CJA committee. And it's according to a CJA plan that the district has created. It actually has to be blessed by the Fourth Circuit. And it's based on a model that we have some alterations to it specific to our district. Other districts do not have the system where there's a CJA coordinating attorney. I think there's only six or seven districts that have that. In those cases, the judges do appoint CJA directly, um, and it's basically entirely up to the judge as to why they want something to go to the defender's office versus the panel, though still usually conflicts are the driving factor. Okay. Do all jurisdictions across the state operate the same way as a federal defender's office, where it's, 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 it's like a federal employee that's like a law firm inside the judicial system? So there are two ways that you can have a defender office. Um, You can have a federal public defender, which is what our office is currently, um, or you can have a community defender office. And the difference is that the federal public defender is a federal agency. So I am a federal employee. A community defender organization is a private nonprofit entity that is funded by a government grant. And typically those are run by a board, just like any other corporation, that board is composed of prominent criminal defense attorneys from the district. In terms of how they function, it's very similar. From the perspective that matters, which is the perspective of the clients, there's no difference between. I should note that there are, I believe it's only two at this point, districts in the nation that do not have a defender organization of any kind. And for those, the only way Uh, for indigent clients to get representation is through the CJA panel in those districts. I believe Southern Georgia, and I want to say Eastern Kentucky. Is that a political thing, or is that just something that just just happened? I'm kind of curious why all of a sudden you have two that are like oddballs out there. Well, it's a great question. Um, And our district did not have a a defender organization until 2005. Uh, we were one of the late adopters. And uh, largely it is a political thing. Uh, and it's really up to the judges of the district as to whether they want to do it or not. The research is pretty clear that uh, federal defender organizations are, are successful and provide high quality representation, which is why uh, almost all the districts have adopted them. I 
really don't know the specifics of those two districts as to why they have chosen not to. Um, they are relatively conservative districts. Uh, I know there were some issues back in 2005 when this was started about whether we really wanted another federal agency um, come into town, uh, which I think is uh, why we started off as now a community to, now defender you're, organization. Now that you're mentioning this, JP, I can understand Eastern Kentucky and Southern Georgia. Yes, I can see them being quite conservative in how they think. I, now that you're mentioning that, I can I can understand that. Yep, completely understand. Yep, that. I mean, that is exactly why we started as a as a CDO and and not a public defender organization. Yeah, over time, I think people realize, well, maybe it's not that bad. To have some federal agency here, um, but that took about ten years of warming up. So your office has uh, paralegals, right? It has investigators, mm-hmm. correct? Correct. Yeah, uh, it's like any other law firm out there. You just happen to be uh, paid with federal funds, then. Yeah, that, that's okay. basically right. Okay. What do you think a common misperception is regarding federal public defenders in the general public? I think the common misperception is that we're not very good, and I don't think anybody who knows anything about the system thinks that I, I, we are, we get a good amount of respect um, in the legal community and from our peers. But over time, the general public has come to believe that public defenders as a group are the lowest available representation. And that's, it's not fair. It's not fair to state public defenders at all. It's certainly not fair to the federal public defenders. And people are often surprised. I get asked a lot if I'm a real lawyer. Um, <laughs> It, it is, and, and it's amazing. Let me, let me, if I can illustrate the switch for you. So when I was in private practice, you know, I was a young lawyer. I was just learning what I was doing and people would come in and, you know, they'd pay, they'd put their problems down. They had utmost faith in me. And I would always think like, I'm not sure I deserve this. <laughs> I'm still figuring out what I'm doing. I feel a little weird that these people put so much confidence in me. Then when I became a federal public defender, and, and these are they're, they're difficult positions to get. They're relatively prestigious. And when I got this job, I thought, like, gosh, I've made it, and now I do know what I'm doing. I'm really I'm qualified to do this, and I'm so proud to be in this job. And the first client I had said, yeah, no offense, but you're not very good, right? Can I get, can I get a real lawyer? <laughs> that was the first question I was asked. So it was just like from one day to the next, my street cred went from you know infinite to zero. Oh. Um, just, it's amazing. Um, it's a big hurdle that you have to overcome with your clients. Uh, they they love to ask uh, if we're federal pretenders. Um, I think a, out of common name out of the public federal defender's office where I worked at as an agent. The ones that I dealt with were, I don't know, a handful, maybe two or Mm -hmm. or three different ones. And they couldn't have gotten their client a better deal. I don't care if you paid someone a million bucks in law fees, you know, in in, in a private lawyer. Kind of like the die's already been cast. It's just a matter of there's no magic wand that any attorney can just wave, really, and and all of a sudden have the facts go away. It just doesn't happen that way. And I think a, a TV is brought in a lot of misconception that uh, the, the the higher the fee for the attorney, the better better the defense. And that's not always true, in my opinion. It just, it just is not. I mean, yeah, there, there could be some better quality in some areas. I, I, don't yeah, see, I, I, don't, I don't see a material difference between private one and the federal defender's office, at least in the white-collar cases that I worked. Maybe in other cases that may be different. But from a tax money laundering standpoint, it's the money. 
where did the money come from, where did the money go to, is not really that complicated in my mind about guilt and innocence of the defendant. So No, I, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And, and I think what you have to remember is federal public defenders do this every single day, all the time. And it is not that common to have a private counsel who is able to sustain their entire practice solely on federal criminal work. That's true. Um, You're right. That is true. We just have more experience with it. Yeah. You know, day in and day out. We also have a lot of resources as an office. That's what distinguishes both, you know, from retained bar, though, of course, if you, you know, have a million dollars, if the client has a million dollars, then then you can have infinite resources that way um, if you're retained. But, you know, we have uh, more access to resources than the CJA panel, too, which is really unfortunate. They, they really should have access to the same amount of resources. We can do the large-scale discovery review. We can hire the experts we need to hire. We really are able to provide, and our goal is to provide the representation that you would get from a retained attorney if you had unlimited resources, essentially. You know, obviously, with, within reason, you know, we're not doing anything frivolous. Our goal is to get our clients the best result that they could get, regardless of who their attorney is. Uh, and that's that should be the goal of the entire system. And even with the CJA panel, if, if the defender's office can't do it, and in my words, punts the football to private attorney, <laughs> a lot of times a private attorney that I'm dealing with the CJA panel is the same attorney that got paid big bucks in the prior case. I mean, it's you, you literally are getting the, the private attorney that, that is charged the big bucks if you think it's the value worth paying for. I have to be very careful about how I talk about these things because I work for attorneys and, you know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> but the facts are the fact. But I have seen some good attorneys, private attorneys, and I've seen some ones, I've seen private attorneys be the worst, but I've mm. never had a public defender be the worst. How's that? I mean, so I, yeah, I have, that's, that's I have fair. seen that. I've seen some of that stuff going, really? You just shake your head and scratch your head, and you're like, I can't believe that would happen. But but yeah, you're right. The public defender's office also has, in a sense, they have almost instant respect in front of the court system, too, because they know these judges in and out. They're always in front of the judges. They, the judges know by their first name. Uh, yep. It's you know, it's it's sort of like, yeah, here we are again. Okay, it's good to see you. And we are able to act as a resource for the CJA panel and, and even for the private bar in that way. So it, it's very common for us to get calls from panel members and from time to time from the private bar. But usually we like people who are, even if there's a retained case, who are on the CJA panel in some capacity, you know, to call the staff and say, how, how does this judge respond to this? Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. And, you know, have you had a case like this before and what happened? Because there's just a certain number of cases you have to sustain to keep a core level of confidence. And it's hard to do that with a private practice. Completely understand. I, I would agree with that 100 percent. So when it in particular about white collar cases. So when a white collar case comes and I know a lot of the federal cases out there are drug possession and typically you're a felon and you have a gun, felon in, in possession of a weapon. A lot of those cases go through the court system. They're not really that complicated. But when there's a white-collar case, it can start getting more and more complicated because of moving parts and money and overseas. There's a lot of things that can happen. When a case becomes complicated, how do you get the help for your office? Great question, and you know, highlights a, a resource that we have, which we have in a dedicated expert budget, which we try to use. 
And so we get help through experts. We can bring in whatever experts we feel we need on the case. Typically, our office and different offices do take different positions on it. But our office has always taken the position that we need to get an expert if we need an expert. So we have a great capacity to reach out and hire people uh, to come in in that way. We also have the internal software that we can use to work with discovery. Our office has been very good and very proactive about trying to be on the forefront of discovery management. Mm-hmm. Um, that can easily get away from you in a white collar case. The volumes of documents in white collar cases can be staggering. Right. Uh, and you really have to get on top of that at the front end. Uh, so we've worked pretty hard to have a system that can you know, control that. Um, and we can bring in more software resources that way. There is a national litigation support uh, unit for the entire federal defender system uh, who also can help with that. And available for the CJA panel as well, there's a series of a uh, Uh, national discovery coordinators for truly massive cases uh, who can handle some of uh, some of the discovery uh, coordination for the audience sake i hate to uh, pause for a second what is discovery in general discovery is just basically the evidence Um, and the evidence can be can take many forms you can have just flat out documents you can have reports written by agents or you know, reports of interviews. You can have emails and white collar cases. You typically have a good number of those. Bank records, which can be extremely voluminous. Now we're seeing more and more social media accounts where the entire Facebook account is grabbed by the government. Yep. And it's huge, just yep. absolutely huge. Contains every, all sorts of different files. Every um, click, videos, every like, audio. Yeah, every search. Oh, man, all that stuff's maintained. And it's gargantuan. And so you might get a dump of, of essentially documents that includes lengthy videos and audio and every meme that anyone sent to each other on Facebook that can be in terabytes of data. Anything that you can imagine. And then, of course, spreadsheets, anything that might be evidence in the case is discovered. Particularly in white collar cases, you need an expert. What kind of experts would you use, number one? And number two is, how does someone get noticed by your office and how do you pick them? So the most common expert that we would use in a white collar case is a forensic accountant. It can vary wildly as to what the needs of the specific case are. We might need you know, a tax specialist for a tax case. There can be bizarre twists and turns that send you to bizarre experts. I had uh, one case where I hired a gold mining expert. Oh, that's got to be um, cool. It was really interesting. I learned, I learned a lot of stuff I never thought that I would learn in that case. The most common expert is going to be a forensic accountant. You really just need someone with that accounting background to help you, the lawyer, navigate through it. And most of our lawyers, particularly in the defender's office, most of our lawyers do not have much business or accounting background. So we, we have to rely pretty heavily on the folks who do to help us get a grasp of, of what's going on in the case. If someone's interested saying, pick me, pick me, uh, I know my forensic accounting, either your office or a, another local to federal defender's office that's in their area, how would they put themselves on the list or be blessed? How does that process work? The best way, honestly, is word of mouth, which is very hard for people who are just getting started, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um but working on cases and putting yourself out there, another great way to do it is if you can teach CLEs for the local bar or, or contact your defender organization and say, hey, I'm interested in, in doing something like that. That's a good way to just get your name known. 
we rely a lot on referrals as well. So, you know, we will have, you know, a retired FBI agent who may know another retired FBI agent who's available or something like that. So keeping your name out in the community is probably the best way to do it. A good way for us um, is really more for convenience than notice in many ways, but is to go ahead and get set up as a federal vendor. Because we have to go through procurement processes. Our expert uh, hiring process is federal government, so it's weird. It's not the same as it is in private practice where you just talk to someone, sign a contract, and pay them as you go. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have to allot the money on the front end. And in order for us to do all that, you'd have to be a federal vendor set up. It's not that hard to do. So it's not a giant bar, but it does make the process easier if you're already in the system. Does that go through Um, your office or does that go through like uh, online? How does that work? uh, I think, I believe it is. Well, I'm going to get the name of the agency wrong that actually does that portion. We will absolutely help people do it. So if we have someone who comes to us, we want to hire them as an expert, we can walk them through the process. Okay. All right. So it's It's not not through your office. It's another agency that that the person has to go through in order to be uh, on the list. Basically, you just have to be listed as a vendor with the federal government and have a, a number with the federal government as a vendor. It's not specific with our office. Our office will we will reach out to you know anyone who we think would be a good fit for a specific case. We can help them get this done. In the last couple of years, what kind of what kind of experts has your office used, whether it's white collar or non-white collar? We mostly hire experts. I think probably the majority, I would say, are uh, psychiatric and and sentencing <laughs> mitigation type experts. Yeah, um, I can I can see that. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> yeah, you may not be shocked to learn that uh, federal criminal defendants uh, have a high rate of mental illness. We are basically always in the market to find new people. We're always looking for an expert who's going to be the right fit for this specific case. We're not interested in just using the same people over and over again. Uh, of course, if we find an expert who we like, we will use them over and over again. And that's probably more true in white collar, frankly, just because of the volume of cases. It's not you know, overwhelming um, number of cases. Whereas in other things, eventually the judges get tired of hearing the same person, even if they like that person, even if they trust that person, they think, oh, well, here's you know, here's Dr. So-and-so yet again, we like to have a, you know, a stable. And then you also have people who have different strengths and different weaknesses in different areas. And we want to be able to, to pick and choose for the right case. So we want more people out there. We want to hear from more people. We want to use more people. Basically, if you have an expertise, you know, contact your local federal defender office. They, they will probably be interested at some point. And we'll just wait for the right case to come through the door. Are there any resources of training that helped you along your journey? I know there's, there's, you said CLEs, uh, mm-hmm. which is the continuing legal education. What's helped you out there, particularly in the white collar field? There have been a number of good CLEs and different programs. I would recommend to anybody who is interested in the criminal defense side to join the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. They do a lot of good work. They put out a lot of good trainings. One that helped me a lot a lot was the White Collar College, and that is a multi-day uh, workshop um, that just is entirely focused on white collar and how to approach white collar cases. So I would highly recommend that. Um, they also have a great magazine that they put out um, roughly monthly. Uh, they have a white collar issue at least once a year, and it has a lot of good information about that. For people who are involved in the indigent defense community, Defender Services Office is the office that essentially 
and DC oversees all of the defender organizations. And it has a training division that puts on numerous regular trainings across the nation um, that are available to defender employees, but also available to CJA attorneys. Anyone on the CJA list um, is, is able to go to these and they cover just an enormous number of topics. I'd also plug in that same line, I mentioned the National Lit, uh, Litigation Support Unit that does technology for the Defender System. Mm-hmm. They also put on trainings that I think are invaluable. I'm going to plug um, TECM, that's the Techniques in Electronic Case Management that uh, is done multiple times a year. And it basically teaches attorneys and staff some of the basics of programs that you really need to know. You know we're talking about Adobe, we're talking about you know, a search programs. Um, um, I've taught at that one a couple times. It's a great introductory program uh, for anyone who is not already on the forefront of discovery software, of electronics. That's a great thing. And I, I would highly recommend everyone do it if you are involved at all in the engine defense. Really, right now, you have to be on the forefront technologically mm-hmm. to handle white collar cases really at this point to handle any case you know right now you're getting you know cell phone full cell phone dumps um and full facebook accounts and and you know gigs and gigs of data in street crime cases yeah you know, and that volume is just going to go up and not down but particularly in white collar cases you really have to understand how to use a search program you know you have to accept the fact that you're not going to be able to lay eyes on every document and a massive, massive data set. And you know, learning that technology is key. One more resource that I would plug is uh, the United States Sentencing Commission. They have a wealth of information about sentencing, um, sentencing data. Um, it, that really helps as federal defense attorneys. We are largely sentencing attorneys. Yeah, not entirely, but largely sentencing attorneys. And that information is incredibly useful to help you drill down on what are people around the country getting for this? What are they have a great amount of research on what actually corresponds to recidivism, which is something that judges obviously really care about. How likely is this guy to go out and do it again? Mm hmm. In addition to regular research reports about that, they also make available all of their data. And it's very, very difficult to use, but you can actually get it and go into the raw data itself and look at everyone who's been sentenced around the country for the same thing with the same sentencing guidelines and see like what they are actually getting. So highly recommend that to anyone who's doing it. Like, Look at, look at the national level stuff. It is very, very useful. What do you wish you had known when you started? Biggest thing I wish I had known when I started is how to recognize when I need help with something and how to ask for that help. And that's sort of general, but I, I really think that is something that's difficult for young attorneys to understand. Like we feel like when we come out as attorneys, we ought to know everything or we're being judged on what we don't know. Mm-hmm. You have to realize, come to realize that asking for help is a strength, not a weakness. It really does tie into our expert conversation because you, you, you don't know everything about these cases and you have to figure that out early on. And learning to say, I don't know what I am doing in this type of case. I need another attorney involved. Or I don't understand these numbers. They're just numbers to me. I need an accountant involved. It can be difficult to do that because it feels like you're displaying 
weakness when you're supposed to be the person who knows everything. I'm glad you said that because that is so true of the attorneys that I dealt with. The ones that were smart were the ones that were willing to sit there and say, please explain this to me. I just don't get it. From a federal prosecutor's table point of view, it's, you know, it's my baby. I created a report. I'd be more than happy to show it to you. And I'd be more than happy to show that here are the weaknesses in my case, if you ask. I mean, I don't have a problem with it because not every case is going to be perfect. But the smart ones actually would ask. And yeah. I think at the end of the day, when it goes to getting in front of the judge and making an argument, they had a better argument than the ones who just kind of winged it and were factually incorrect by their assumptions. And mm -hmm. then the prosecutor gets their witness up going, yeah, no, 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 the attorney has no clue what they're talking about. You know, because it didn't, they were so arrogant in how they approached it, they didn't have their facts right. And it kind of backfired on them almost. If they had asked a question beforehand, before they went into court, they maybe their argument would have been different. They may have got the same result. I don't know. But the point is, is that at least the embarrassment factor wasn't there. I mean, that is so accurate. And you know, speaking of things that I wish I had known early on, it wasn't until I worked with a retired FBI agent that I realized that you could do that. <laughs> um, I think lawyers are so used to being cagey with each other and not giving each other you know, things that that you're not entitled to yeah. um, and fighting over discovery, especially if you come from a civil background like I did, you're just kind of used to, you know, fighting for every inch of ground. And that, and that can be true with prosecutors too. But, you know, I have a, a retired FBI agent I've worked with and he was like, well, I'm just going to talk to the agent. I'm just going to say, hey, how'd you do that? Where'd, yeah. you, where'd you get that from? And you know, they tell them. <laughs> that just saves so much work and it made the whole process easier. And that's, and you know, we do that routinely now. And, and because, you know, it, it, I do find like the agents, they believe in their cases. They believe very strongly in their cases. For, so, you know, there are exceptions, but for the most part, they're willing to show their work Yep. because they're comfortable in it. And as a criminal defense attorney, that's great because you can then find the weaknesses in it and exploit them. And you can also know, Oh no, they got that one pretty good. We should not touch that area. Yeah. Um, yes, overconfidence works both ways. You know, and that's the blinders of 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 the government is, you know, they feel so confident in their case, they feel that it could not be reasonably doubted. When you believe that 100%, you are it's just a, you know, basic psychology that you can blind yourself to the flaws in it. I mean, that's just human nature. It's not anything negative about prosecutors or agents. It's how humans operate. They should be approaching it and, all, and generally are approaching it from the perspective of, yeah, this is, I've done my work. So if you want to look at it and you want to throw stones at it, knock yourself out. Believe it or not, behind the scenes on the federal prosecutor's table, we'd always sit there and go, have we covered all our bases right? Does that defense attorney know something that we don't know? Because no, nobody wants them to be. I mean, there's a lot of ego at stake in courtrooms, mm -hmm. federal courtrooms particularly. It's no one true. wants to be wrong, and no one wants to be be, be perceived as being weak <laughs> either. So you so know, true. <laughs> uh, I sit there and say, I, I I think we're good. What about does this? What about does that? What, what about this? And you, you just kind of mulled over, which is a good exercise, by the way. It's not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I call it healthy skepticism or healthy paranoia. <laughs> You know, it's what it is. You got to have it, you know, because you're yeah, not absolutely. perfect. Yeah, no one's perfect, but no one wants to be embarrassed either. And I learned that too with, with federal prosecutors. Don't hide the ball. 
if there's a mistake mm-hmm. in your case, let the attorney know beforehand, not in the courtroom, before the courtroom. Right. Yes. <laughs> no one wants that grenade to blow up in their face no. in the middle of a trial or a sentencing. That is so true. So true. All right. Looking back in your career, what's the biggest mistake or lost opportunity? There's there's two I'm, I'm going to label. One is letting myself get overburdened and taking on too much. You can reach an, a, a point where you feel like I ought to be able to do all these things. And yeah, particularly, I, I think for from the federal defender side, we want to help everybody. Yeah, uh, we want every client to get that representation. I think on the civil side, there sorry, the private side rather, there there is some of that, but there's also the business side of it where you you know you need to keep the lights on, mm-hmm. and both of those can compel you to take in more cases than you can handle, taking on more responsibility than you can handle. Um, outside of cases, you know, doing things with the bar and, um, you know, getting out and meeting and greeting, that type of thing um, on top of it. Taking on too much is hurting everything. Doing a lot of everything means you're doing nothing particularly well. That's something that I've struggled with, you know, and I still do uh, from time to time. And so that's a big issue uh, and mistake that I have had uh, in the past that I strongly recommend people pay attention on the front end. And speaking of paying attention on the front end, the other mistake is getting started on things too late without proper analysis. And this one really ties into white collar cases, particularly it's true of all cases, but it's very easy to look at a case and think, okay, I know what to do and where to go. And then when you get into it, you realize, oh, there's, there's a lot more underneath this than I thought there was. Mm-hmm. And if you don't get going on the front end, you can lose so much time and be just doing nothing but playing catch up. And that just puts you at enormous disadvantage. As a federal defense attorney, you start off in that hole because the prosecutors don't actually have to indict the cases until they're ready to, for the most part. Right. Um, you know, they can do all their homework on the front end. And the point at which they say, all right, we're good to go is the point that you start. Yeah. And it is very easy to get behind, to wait to hire that expert, to glance through discovery, feel like you know that everything's there and not do a comprehensive review of it and not Mm -hmm. start a comprehensive review of it until it's too late. And then you're really just behind the eight ball. I've learned a lot from my early mistakes uh, in that regard. You've got to get going on the front side, really examine what you have, figure out what you're going to need and get set up uh, before you end up too far behind. Very good, JP. Very good. You ready for the final four questions? Let's do it. All right. Final four. What is your biggest motivation now? My biggest motivation professionally is uh, to get back to doing my cases. I've I've spent seven years in management. I'm very proud of my time in management, but I, you know, my love and passion is representing my clients. Um, So my biggest motivation now is to just focus on that side um, and really see how I can up my game for my clients and representing my clients. I'm also very interested in exploring the root causes of criminality and recidivism because I feel like that is an area that is underexplored in, in the criminal law. We're, we're, we're working on treating the end results um, and we need to look a little bit more at, at the roots of it. 
personally, I've got a two-year-old. Um, so my biggest motivation is just being the best dad that I can be and trying not to, to have him kill me or kill himself. And this, this just takes up a lot of time. <laughs> a two-year-old will change your life because it's, it's, it's a totally different ballgame and they don't come with instruction manuals. Boy, howdy. And they change every single day. <laughs> exactly. And they like to test your patience about, can I get some, can I get some water? No, go to bed. What about some milk? Go to bed. Boy, that sounds like last night. That yep. sounds too close to last night. <laughs> Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I completely understand. Uh, what book or books have changed your life or thinking? So I've got, I've got a couple, uh, two here for you. One is it's called The Elements of Eloquence by Mark Forsyth. I'm a big language nerd. I like writing. I like terms of phrases. And I like how that goes into crafting persuasive arguments. Mm-hmm. This book is it's really just a good, succinct explanation of ways of doing that through terms of phrases that really are things that have evolved over time. And a lot of that used to be studied, but now is kind of dropped out of our our modern way of teaching. It it really changes the way you think about language and the way that you use language to achieve things, to to persuade um, and to evoke emotions, uh, which is, I find it independently cool. It's also very helpful being a lawyer. The other totally different one that is fairly recent read for me is The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. It's a really detailed examination of the way that the legal system and the actual law was set up to create long-term disparities in America between the the races. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's very, very factual about it. And I find it very difficult to to read these facts and not come away with a different view of how we ended up in the situation we're in today, which is particularly relevant for my profession because racial justice is a major issue in federal criminal defense. Share something that you purchased in the last 12 months, less than $100, that you enjoyed or made your job easier. What would that be? Yeah, so this is ridiculous, but I thought of the big iron water bottle that I carry with me. And the main reason I actually got it was I was tired of my son sticking his hands in my water. Um, but it has really made my life better. I just always have nice cold water on hand at any time. And it just, it's just refreshing. It's just, it keeps me hydrated more than I was before. I know this seems dumb, but it it really has made a large difference in my life. Uh, So I recommend it. Hydration is happiness. Last questions. If you had to do something else, if you got fired today and can no longer be a lawyer, what would you be doing? So my wife is a professional author. He's a New York Times bestselling author. Several years back, we co-wrote a series of middle grade books about uh, you know wizards and magic that were professionally published. So that was fun, and I would probably do that. Uh, it's the exact opposite of what we as lawyers do day in and day out, um, just playing around in imagination. Oh, uh, I would dare say that that's what defense lawyers do all the time. And don't look at this hand. Look at this hand over here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fair. That's a very good point. But we like to tell you that it's not imagination. <laughs> so give a shout out to your wife. What kind of books is she, uh, what series is she writing? 
so she her first book um and series of books were young adult novels so it's for teenagers and she's written novels both with me and without me uh, for middle grade kids and now she has just published an adult thriller I'm, i couldn't be prouder of her she is an escapee from law she we met in law school and she practiced big law for i think three years until she got her first writing contract um, and then and she has never looked back where does she go by uh, from an author's name carrie ryan c-a-r-r-i-e-r-y-a-n i'm looking it up right now <laughs> carrie ryan new york times best-selling author congratulations the mm-hmm. forest of hands and teeth about yep, zombies that's the first one it's about zombies, teenagers and zombies. <laughs> the map to everywhere about magic, the daughter of deep silence, which is revenge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's got quite a few out there. Congratulations. Yeah, the map to everywhere is the series that we wrote together. Well, Carrie Ryan, C-A-R-R-I-E-R-Y-A-N.com. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Well, JP, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I do appreciate oh, it. Good luck to you as you move down a notch and do more public defending versus management. I do appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you, Robert. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun.